Father, in Jesus' name, we thank you again uh, for another time. In worship today, Lord God, uh, we've come to be refreshed, Lord God, to be strengthened, Lord God, to be built up in so many different ways, and we thank you, Lord. Uh, we love to hear the songs of Zion, Lord. Uh, we love to hear the hymns, Lord God, that praise your name, Lord God, uh, that speak of our story in Jesus Christ. Uh, we thank you so much, Lord God, that uh, our fellow uh, brothers and sisters in the faith, Lord God, uh, that we get a chance to just take a glimpse into their lives, Lord. Uh, but nevertheless, Father, here we are today, ready, prepped to hear your word. Uh, therefore, Father, we ask you, Lord God, that you would uh, move into our hearts now, Lord God. We ask you that you would not wait until the first word is spoken, Lord God. We pray that you would begin that work right now in the name of Jesus Christ. And Lord God, my prayer, Lord, if there's any resistance, Lord God, to your word, Lord God, uh, that you would uh, deal with that right now in the name of Jesus Christ, breaking down all those walls that have been built up, all those walls of resistance against your word, against the truth, Lord God, uh, to everyone under the sound of my voice. Again, Father, you have your way in our midst today. We love you. We thank you. We worship you. And we ask you these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. One thing that you don't want, you don't want, well, two things you don't want. Uh, you don't want an angry person, someone who's mad, cooking your food. And you don't want someone who's mad washing your dishes. I recall, as much as you already know I dislike washing dishes, but I recall as a, uh, I was at home with my parents having to wash dishes. And you know you start slinging stuff all over the place, right, and, and halfway cleaning things. And uh, recalling the time that I was reprimanded because uh, when uh, my parents looked at the dishes, there was still food caked onto the dishes. There's nothing like uh, ready to eat or drink out of, of, of some kind of utensil, right, that is dirty or have something caked on side of it. Another trick that I used to do when I was a kid, I don't know if you come over to my house, I don't do it today, but sometimes I would just rinse it off and put it right over into the dish, put it into the dish rack. Kids. So sometimes you, when you think that something is clean, it really isn't. That's why they've come out with all types of soaps, antibacterial soap, that's supposed to get to the root of all that other stuff that after you thought it was clean, then the rest of that chemical, it does the rest of the job for you. Purportedly. But how do you know if you are a believer, or if you're supposed to be a believer, how do you know if you're clean or not? Do you still have that residue of uncleanliness on you and in your life? A little caked on piece of meat, or that uh, caked on bread, or that uh, that one grit, you know that one grit that you cook that always seems to be left somehow if you don't clean it right, that one grit that remains on the dish, uh, that one uh, piece of sinfulness that remains on you. How clean are you? Today's message, uh, we're going to look at Second Peter chapter 1. And what Peter deals with 
in this passage that I'm going to handle today is how do you distinguish a disciple of Jesus Christ from a heretic? What is the difference between someone who's opposed to Jesus Christ and someone who says that they live for Jesus? How do you know the difference between a follower of Christ and a false prophet? For that matter, anyone else who's opposed to the richness of uh, uh, the righteousness of Jesus. You see, Peter, uh, he was faced with the prospect of these opposing forces infiltrating and derailing the Christian experience for believers who were just trying to live their life and to uh, walk the walk of faith. Uh, they just wanted to live for Jesus Christ. So many people around, and we're talking about uh, at the writing of this epistle, so many people around believing in a host of false gods and false prophets and false apostles and false teachers, uh, having a desire to lead other folks off of the straight and narrow to uh, live a life that God is not pleased with. They were promoting very perverse spiritual ideas. And of course, there is nothing as perverse as saying that Jesus is not God, uh, that Jesus Himself, that He died for our sins. There's nothing more uh, perverse than opposing those ideas. So as a believer of Jesus Christ, there is a distinction between the cleanliness of those who have been washed with the blood of Jesus Christ versus the uncleanliness of those who walk in darkness. Please, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5. Peter says, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness fastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. How do we prevent ineffectiveness and or unfruitfulness in our walk as believers. Look at verse 8 in that same passage. Peter goes on to say, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So first, we must know understand and deeply embed into our heart the fact that Jesus has given us everything that pertains to life and godliness. So whatever you have been looking for, whatever you think that you need concerning life and godliness, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you already have it. 
In other words, Jesus has provided spiritual resources for everything that we need to live a successful Christian life. How is it possible to have everything? You see what it says there. He said, these things are yours, right? And that they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. How is it possible to have everything that we need that pertains to life and godliness? How is this possible? Wouldn't this therefore mean, if this is true, that we have obtained some type of key to life itself? If we have everything that pertains to that, and the answer to that question is yes and yes. But we must put it all into perspective, realizing that true life and true godliness speaks to the way of life for those who follow Jesus Christ. So it's not just something that anyone can, uh, can read and say, I'm going to live this way and that's it. No, you have to be uh, very explicitly a follower of Jesus Christ. You see, during this time, uh, some Greek philosophers and, and writers, along with some of the sects of Judaism and the Gnostics, thought it was necessary and possible to escape everything they see going on in this world. In other words, uh, they thought that uh, there is a certain holiness or a certain spirituality that you can have in this life that you can escape all the stuff, all the mess that you see going on on a daily basis. That you can escape the decay in relationships, the decay in politics, and the downturn of society as a whole. And this reminds us, quite frankly, of our own society which seems to be headed down the same pathway. Uh, but another solution to these ills uh, in this ancient society was not only escaping it all, but you yourself becoming a god. You can be 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 a god. If you really think about it, Again, you will also see the vestiges of this dark spirituality to some degree in certain religious organizations which refer to themselves as churches but are a far cry from being the house of God or the body of Christ. So, if you were living during that day, you had plenty of options. You had plenty of options for uh, any type of spirituality to escape the mess of this life and these uh, so-called pseudo-religious uh, systems. So we have this access for us, those who are followers of Jesus Christ, uh, because of the knowledge we have of Him, who called us to His own glory and excellence. In, in Christ, Scripture tells us, we have been granted all things related to life and godliness. This happens through the knowledge of Him, the knowledge of who? The knowledge of Jesus. The knowledge of Him refers to the redemption in what we have obtained through Him because of His sacrifice on the cross. So, well, what sets Jesus apart from all others claiming uh, to impart godliness, right? How is Jesus so special? 
All right? Uh, when we talk about Jesus, well, he's so special because of his life, his death, and his resurrection versus all of the false claims that these false prophets and false teachers would put out there. See, uh, you can say anything that you want, and you can say it as passionately as you desire, but at the end of the day, we must deal with the simple question of, is it true? Is what you're believing, is it true? Is it the truth, or is it something that has been made up in order to persuade you to grasp hold of their thinking and to lead you astray? How many times must the little boy cry woof before you finally say, I have had enough of those lies? And I submit to you that it takes two people for a lie to become effective. It takes two people for a lie to become effective. One, you need the person to speak the lie. And two, you need another person to hear it and then to believe the lie. You see, if a person speaks lies, they can speak it all they want to, but until someone believes it, all those words simply fall to the ground. Everyone believed the boy when he repeatedly cried woof. The entire town came to his defense of someone who had been threatened by the potential of an attack by a wild creature. The wild creatures of religious dishonesty and heresy have been around since uh, the, uh, the Lord God first told Adam and Eve not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil lest you die. That voice cried woof at that time when it told Adam and Eve, you shall not surely die. Go ahead and eat, it's good. You see, the lie of the adversary that it meant nothing until you actually believed it and actually acted upon it. In fact, uh, that voice which uh, cried spiritual wolf uh, had not only said, you shall surely die, but within that claim, he in, it implied that God himself is a liar. You see, if God says that you shall surely die, and then you tell someone else that you shall not surely die, not only are you lying to them, but then you are making a claim against God himself that says God is lying to you. And all this stuff that you hear, that, uh, that you hear from the word of God that is simply not true, so you need to believe me instead of believing God's word, with it, which is e eternal, which is full of power, which gives us life. But we know the truth. And we know that God is true. And there is no ounce, no inkling of deceit in the Lord God. Therefore, we have become partakers of His divine nature by receiving His Spirit, uh, being granted eternal life. No, you are not a God. As I'm sure if you look around in this room, you'll know everybody else is not a God either. Amen? But you have received His Spirit, which allows us to be in relationship with Him uh, to help us discern and to separate truth from lies. So if you have His Spirit, then you can see the difference between what is true and what is lie, what to follow and what to run away from. Living in this falsity of false teaching 
And following a deceptive spirit will always lead you down the path of ineffective and unfruitful living and ineffective and unfruitful ministry. So this truth is not only for the believer who needs to be reminded how to live, but also for the minister. Those who minister to others, uh, which would encompass, therefore, everyone who touches the lives with the gospel of Jesus Christ, and even through the acts of kindness that you may have, uh, how you uh, display your Christian life. This truth is for all of us. And as we heard last time, this means all of us who are ambassadors of Christ, who have been given the responsibility of leading others, and being an example, and pulling them from darkness into light. So we prevent ineffective and unfruitful living and ministry. How do we do that? By supplementing our faith. Verses 5 and 7 again, for this very reason, I make every effort to supplement your faith. Peter says, with virtue and virtue, knowledge and knowledge and self-control, self-control, steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. The word supplement is used, but the word that is meant is the word support. The word supplement is used, but the word that is meant, and to understand the text a little bit better, it is the word support. Our faith is supported or strengthened by certain characteristics which should be a part of our godly character. This is the way that we should live. These things should be embedded in our hearts. These things should be part of the filter as far as the way that we exist on a day-by-day basis. In other words, our faith goes the extra mile if our character is consistent with the object of faith, of our faith, and that is Jesus Christ. But remember that Christ alone is sufficient for all we need in terms of godliness and eternality. We need nothing else other than Jesus. Then if this is true, you say, If this is true, that I don't need anything more than Jesus, then why do I need things to supplement or to support my faith? Well, in uh, downtown Chicago, if you've been down there lately, and if you haven't, uh, pay a visit, but I'm sure it's true of most major urban economic centers around the world, there's all types of buildings under construction. Tall buildings, short buildings, Buildings with lots of grass and buildings with lots of bricks and lots of stone. But they all have a basic structure in common, which includes, as you can imagine, a foundation. What good would a house, what good would a building be if it did not have a foundation? The structural beams that go up and down and that crisscross the building, of course, A building is not a building without walls. Who can be in a building without a wall? Other than that, it's just uh, some type of structure that has been built up. But even with the foundation, even with uh, the, the steel or the wooden beams, and even with the walls, 
the end of the day, they always end up adding more things to it, like doors, heating and air conditioning, lights, paint, pictures on the wall, and in a lot of cases, even carpeting. But do those things make up the building? You see, do they actually make up the actual structure themselves? Of course they do not. They become a part of it, but they are not essential to that building standing in place. They just add maybe better functionality or, or help them to be more aesthetically pleasing to the eye. In the end, a building becomes more attractive and appealing due to all the ornamentation, all the paint, all the artwork, the carpeting, more comfortable. You see, when we view the life of a believer, we first see Jesus. Jesus is our structure. Jesus is our foundation. Jesus is the beams of our spiritual life. Jesus is the roof. Jesus is the walls. But for us, he's also our heating system. He warms us up as well. But when we look further, when we look deeper, we discover that ornamentation hanging off the walls of our spiritual life, of the lights, the paint, the pictures on the wall, the carpeting that we see. And for us as believers, that is what we see here. Virtue. Knowledge. Self-control steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, love. Those are the ornamentation that hangs upon our spiritual life that even though those things have not saved us, we become more attractive and more spiritually, aesthetically pleasing to those who are looking from the outside, looking on the in. That's While we will not spend our time focusing, though, on each of these, I'd just like to point out a few. One, virtue. Again, we may typically think of the word valor or some type of fame related to this word, but a Christian, for a Christian, that, that meaning seems to be out of place, and it most certainly is. A better way to understand this is in terms of excellence or living a lifestyle that displays of the righteousness and the goodness that's found in Jesus Christ. And then what about self-control? Uh, do you have virtue? Uh, but do you have self-control? This is one which uh, doesn't deserve much explanation, but needs to be pointed out because within the Christian community, self-control is seemingly harboring, coming harder to find. Oh yeah, I'm a Christian, but yet uh, I, I'm going to go ahead and curse. Oh yeah, I, I'm a Christian, but I'm going to go ahead and get drunk and fall out. Oh yeah, I'm a Christian, but I like to fight all the time. Oh yeah, I'm a Christian, but yet I don't want to do anything that anyone has to say. Right? I'm a Christian, but when I get to the job, I'm not going to listen to my boss. Or when I'm a Christian, I'm going to go home after school, I'm not going to listen to anything that my parents say. I'm a Christian, but you see, when you act like that without self-control, when you act like that, you don't look like a Christian. Who wants to follow that Mess. But one obvious reason, again, that we're seeing this less and less is because people are willing to place their habits in unbiblical traditions ahead of Jesus himself. People are willing to place their habits in unbiblical traditions ahead of Jesus himself. 
You see, we can fall into this trap to think that, you know, just because uh, uh, I have a Christmas tree, I'm a Christian. And then when you don't have a Christmas tree, oh, they're nothing but a heretic. They don't like Christmas trees. See, the idea is that you can have it or you cannot have it, depending upon the meaning that you put behind it. But at the end of the day, those, uh, those things that we have, uh, that they should be secondary or third or fourth or sixth or tenth place after Jesus Christ himself. When we place anything ahead of Christ, you have immediately lost your self-control. We have failed to control ourselves with the power of God in many areas, including how we relate to one another, our sexuality, and even our eating habits. You know, even food itself, we can put that above Jesus Christ. All these may indicate a lack of self-control, which if brought under the lordship of Jesus Christ, can and will result in victory. Now, even though we have not spoken of all these areas, let us not forget the knowledge of Christ and that of our faith and the ability to persevere when it gets tough and the ability to love when we are not being loved in return. All of those already belong to you. Guess what? You already have it. But you must first walk in them to realize them. You must begin to practice them. So faith, though, is, look at the passage, is the primary component to all of these, followed by virtue and knowledge and so on and so forth. All of these are possible for all of us. But they become, in essence, our responsibility. They are your responsibility. You must nurture them. You must grow them with the help of the Holy Spirit. The bottom line is we cannot ignore it and we cannot pretend like God doesn't care because he does. God cares if you have uh, these supplements in your life. God cares that if you're living with these uh, characteristics because after all, you are representing Jesus. There are some believers who are only content with knowing that they are saved and they are not going to hell. Some believers are only content that once they get saved, that's all they care about. I'm not going to hell, so let me go back and live the way I've always lived. Like one and done. Let me get saved and that's it. But this is not the complete picture of what it means to follow Jesus Christ. Not going to hell should not be the only goal for a believer. Say it one more time, because maybe you didn't hear it the first time. Not going to hell should not be the only goal, should, should not be the only goal for the believer. Our goal should be to live full for the Lord here on the earth, completely for Him as His ambassadors and with the newness of the Spirit and not the oldness or the staleness of tradition. So, here it is. We must remember that we are cleansed. We must remember we are cleansed. Remember you are cleansed. 2 Peter 1 verse 9. For whoever lacks these qualities is so 
nearsighted, that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Not having these qualities means you are nearsighted, or as we could say, blind to the truth. You are blind as a bat. In some sense, we have become so sensitive that even calling a person blind to the truth may elicit insult instead of conviction of the heart. What Scripture does, from many centuries away, being called from many millennia away, uh, speaking to us from then into now, God's voice speaking in real time, it is, it is delivering God's voice into our situation in a way that is full of power and full of conviction if we care to listen carefully. Something we are missing. You don't have it because we can't see straight. We're blind to the truth. But how does someone who has been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ make it to a place of blindness? How if you one day say, Lord, I have sinned and I give my life to you, how can you then, then turn around and be blind to the truth? How does a disciple of Jesus get to a point of not living a spiritually discerning life? I mean, Jesus Christ should be in our DNA. The power of the Spirit should be our default response to everything, right? Shouldn't it be? But as I mentioned earlier, some believers think they gain Jesus and they lose hell and that's it. For them, this is all they really wanted in the first place. I don't want to go to hell when I die. I don't want to go to hell when I die. I got Jesus. I'm not going to hell, but I can keep living the way I live. For them, they only wanted this. But if being in a geographical place uh, called heaven was your goal and not a relationship with God, then you will also lose both. So if you just want to be in a different geographical location and you really don't want to live for God, you really don't want that relationship, well, not only will you lose uh, heaven, but you will also lose God at the same time. We forget that we have been cleansed from our former sins. My goodness, how could a believer forget something as significant as being uh, cleansed from their former sins? How can we forget this? How can we forget when we are faced with doing wrong, forget that Jesus died for us? How can we forget that? How can we forget that we will no longer experience spiritual death? What happens is we give way to the spiritually unhealthy activities which have a tendency to cloud our spiritually healthy actions. Hating your brother in the faith is one example. First uh, John chapter two, verse eleven. First John chapter two, verse eleven. The apostle John says, "But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes." So, if you hate someone, you call yourself in the Lord, then you are. Walking in darkness. You're walking in darkness. But frankly, that is the point where the believer is also unduly influenced by those outside forces which seem to infiltrate our thinking to degree. We forget that we have been cleansed in the first place. 
No, when we walk in darkness, when we do things that are dark, that doesn't mean that those folks who are pulling us, uh, that they uh, want us to say, come on down here so I can get you to, to compromise in your faith. No, they may, not be, uh, they may not lead us down that path because that's all too obvious. What they do is present an alternative to us which seems to make sense. We forget Scripture, we forget the mandate of God, and we listen to them, and they say, you know what, that kind of makes sense, right? It seems to flow with the logic of common sense, which no one could reject, not even its harshest critics, we believe, as an example. And I use this example because these are some things that we experienced uh, when we were raising children. And you know how it is when you're in school. And then there is a deluge of school activities. See, the school never will tell you not to go to church. Well, most of the time they won't say that and put it to you like that. The school will not tell you, don't attend activities at your church. But they put the pressure on anyway. How? Simple. Oh, we're going to have activities on Wednesdays. Right? Wednesday night, something going on at school. And then now, they say that, well, on Sunday, we're going to have our assembly or our graduation on Sunday. Like, well, why can't you have the assembly or the graduation on Saturday? Or better yet, during school time. Why can't you do it during school? In fact, I recall the time that we have, I'm not sure if uh, my family remembers this, uh, but it ha happened for, for both of my kids, that we had a teacher who gave an assignment for the entire class to defend evolution. Uh, you see, uh, it, it was not a choice between creationism and evolution. That was not the choice. The assignment was to def defend evolution. They didn't tell us, no, put all that creationism things to the side. You know, you, you can't do that. So what I did, you know, I'm big time, right? I have a, a master's degree in theology. Big time. I'm going to help my son walk through this. Right? And boy, I sat back and we walked through this thing together. And, uh, and, and we talked about evolution, but we talked about how creationism made more sense. And we use references from science and we use references from scripture. And therefore at the end of the day our, 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 our solution was no issue is that, that it's nonsense to believe in evolution and it makes more sense to believe in God who created all things. And would you believe that me and my son got a C minus on that? I mean my son got a C minus on that? Can you believe that? And you know what I did, right? I took that like a man. No, I didn't. I called him up. I said, we need to meet. I said, how are you going to tell me, how are you going to give me a C minus, I mean, give my son a C minus on this paper? Well, Mr. Spencer, the assignment was they had to defend evolution. I said, no. I said, we dealt with evolution, and then when we did our study, we discovered that evolution made no sense, so how can we defend something we don't even believe in? 
This is what they were going to do. This is what they did. They took all the class's papers and they sent them to the Board of Education as a reason to ultimately remove any aspect of creationism out of the curriculum. That's what they did with it. You see that? But ultimately, when they are leading you down this path, they did not dis disparage the church or scripture. They just led you to believe that everything was okay. And they constantly spoke of this alternative view. Let's just take a look. It's going to be okay. I don't mean this. But consider this. Who has more time with your children in a learning environment? Is it you, the church, or the school? You see, unless you strongly reinforce what they learned from the Lord uh, uh, at home or get them to church, then eventually the school's way of thinking may win out their thinking. So they must be supported, must be around those who love Jesus Christ, and they must learn of the Lord. If not, then you're going to look up one day and you're going to have these questions. Whatever happened to my baby? I've heard it before. Whatever happened to my baby? Well, number one, you didn't bring them to church when they're supposed to. You didn't, you didn't get them in that environment where they can grow into the things of the Lord. Well, you can do it all at home. I grant that. There's a certain environment that sometimes our children will only listen to others. Did you know that? That you can tell your children up and down what the truth is, but at the end of the day, they will only listen to a stranger. Just like, I'm not sure if you have teachers like this, I had teachers like this, that they would teach you day in and day out, day in and day out, and you wouldn't hear anything they said, then they would bring guest teacher in or something like that and they would tell and they would tell the students the same thing you would, and then a the student would say oh really I didn't even know that and then a the teacher would say I told these little suckers this every single day what they mean they didn't know it same thing happens environment in the home so Jesus says that you are already clean so if that's the case what are we doing waddling in the mud John 15 and 3, the Gospel of John, 15, verse 3. Jesus says, already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Already you are clean. You are cleansed. You are cleansed. You are clean. Catharsis is the Greek word. You are clean. Brothers and sisters, you are clean. Jesus has cleansed you. You have moved from an existence of darkness and dirtiness and unrighteousness and unholiness to this place of light, righteousness, holiness in the Lord himself. It is through Christ that we have received our cleanliness under the new covenant. But the trouble some of us experience is returning from whence we came. 2 Peter chapter 2. Verse 22. What Peter says here. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to his own vomit and the sow or the pig after washing herself 
returns to wallow in the mire. First time I saw a dog eating its own vomit, that was the most repulsive thing I have ever seen in my life. There are those who continue to return to the vomit of their former existence and think nothing of it and think that it's good. And when was the last time uh, that you were around a person who vomited on themselves that didn't smell like vomit? When was the last time you've been around a Christian who says they're a Christian, but yet they live a life of vomit? They return to their own ways. In Christ, you are cleansed. That is what happened, has happened to you. And that is who you are. You are cleansed. So how do you prevent failure? 2 Peter 1, verses 10 and 11. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling in the election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. If you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Let's try it again. For if you practice, if we, if I practice these qualities, we will what? Never fall. So how do we prevent failure? How do we pre prevent ourselves from falling? By practicing these qualities. What are these qualities? Those things that supplement our faith, virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, uh, and, and love. If we practice these things, we will not fall. Our acceptance into heaven then will be more confirming and assuring at that time as we are faithful in these areas. Verse 11, Peter says, For in this way there will be richly provided for you an interest into, entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You see, every time we compromise on our position of faith in any area, there's a deep-seated feeling that we have disappointed God. When we have disappointed God, that disappointment, it morphs into the possibility that the Lord may discipline us for our momentary foray into the dark side. And then when we begin to wonder if our faith was in vain because of that foray into the dark side, we begin to believe that we're not doing anything strong enough to prevent us from that last sinful excursion. If our faith is therefore in vain, then the possibility of heaven is now in question. So, when we sin, when we don't live by these qualities, uh, our eternality is then in question in our mind. We wonder, am I really going to heaven? So, by maintaining a lifestyle that is consistent with those characteristics like virtue and knowledge and so on and so forth, uh, it makes us stronger and more secure in our walk. By remembering you are cleansed and being diligent in your faith, you become more confident and more able as a witness of Jesus Christ. By practicing what you now know means you will never fall. So we must carefully note that Peter provides a promise to us for our faithful attention to these areas as he's just highlighted. So you will not fall. But we must be in constant practice in our faith. We must be in constant practice 
in our faith. Why? And how is it possible? Because you have been cleansed. Said what? You have been what? Cleansed. We have been what? Cleansed. We have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And for that, we can say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, again for all that you have done for us. Let us pray. Lord, thank you.